The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. How's that? All right. Um, so, essentially, uh, that was. It's been an interesting process to um, to prepare for this talk, and so that's part of what I wanted to share tonight as I talk. Um, sort of the first step is to write your spiritual religious autobiography, and I'd never done that, like not like from beginning to end. So uh, that was a, um, I was surprised actually by um, how many religious and spiritual threads and how much impact it had had on my life. Um, So, uh, and I've also been surprised by how my own understanding of this history has changed over the course of uh, writing and reflecting, actually. And um, so I'm grateful, you know, uh, um, for that process. Pretty amazing, actually, how almost every time I come back to it, it's a different story. (laughs) You know, just seen just a little bit differently. Um, and one of the things before I sort of start telling the story um, I wanted to say is at this point in my life I really, there's no mistakes in my life, right? There's no bad things that happened from this perspective, right? That, that everything has contributed to my becoming and being and having the life that I have now and I'm incredibly blessed and grateful so that's important for me. So even if at some times in my life it didn't feel so good or didn't feel like it was right or fair or good, um, I have nothing but gratitude now, really, for all of it. And um, the other thing is that it's very important for me to recognize that I have some very important people here tonight, and I feel it's quite a blessing, actually. So I'm from um, Seattle, Washington, initially. And um, pretty much all of my family is, that I'm close to is in that area. And I have the three people in my family that I'm closest to here tonight by chance. So my mom and my two aunts, uh, Richard's been calling them the sisters. <laughs> and they are my sisters and my mothers and my aunts, all of them in every way. So, And I also have another sister here. <laughs> My sister Susan, who uh, I went to college with and I lived with, and um, yeah, so long, long journeys with these people and other very beautiful Sangha friends here supporting me. So thank you. So uh, I was born in Seattle, and um, so from a religious perspective. Um, I could almost invite you guys to help me tell the story. But um, my father converted to Catholicism um, to marry my mother in the Catholic Church. That their, Her family had spent their lifetime attending. And um, 
I'm not sure what his religion was before that, but he had some religion, Lutheran or something. Yeah, and um, and so early on in my life, uh, the Catholic Church for me, what I associate, what I remember from it was it's really it was for special occasions, Easter, Christmas, weddings, you know, pretty nice. Getting I remember dressing up dresses, and you know, you had to wear nice clothes to Sunday Mass, and um, you know that was the predominant uh, experience I had until uh, first grade. And in first grade, I went to a Catholic school. So uh, from first through third grade, I went to this Catholic school, and all of a sudden, it was kind of (laughs) different. It was very different, actually, for me. My relationship to uh, religion changed dramatically. And um, uh, so one of the first biggest thing that stands out that's sort of like a you know, one of those kid things is you had to wear a uniform. And, um, and your uniform and your socks and your shoes and everything were supposed to match. And um, I don't know, maybe I wasn't very good at keeping my clothes clean or maybe I didn't have that many pairs of socks. I don't know. But I, I remember distinctly, this probably wasn't the first time, but I wore these I had a red plaid skirt, right, white blouse, button-up, and a blue cardigan sweater. And I wore bright gold socks. (laughs) I got sent to the principal's office. And not only did I get sent to the principal's office, but there was a bottle of Tabasco sauce on the counter and I was told that if I didn't wear matching socks, that that Tabasco sauce would end up on my tongue. Yeah, right? That made quite an impression on me. And um, I think the two, and this becomes a theme for me in the story, is I had so much shame. I was so embarrassed. I just was so mortified, right? And I was afraid. That was scary. <laughs> you know, I don't know which grade I was in at that time, but, you know, I was first through third, so I was fairly young. And um, I, you know, I, I can still feel in my body that shame, you know, that... Um, I can, like, it's so interesting. So right now, right, one of my commitments to myself today, as I was telling this, was to be committed to the healing that can happen as you revisit and open things and are mindful with the process. So just now I can feel some of that emotion rising up, right? It's amazing, right? A little kid. Of course, I have a very different perspective about it, but now, you know, but... It had a big impact. I also remember, um, I don't know why I remember this, but this is probably the way-seeking mind that started at that age, which I remember walking to and from school, and I'd often look at the nunnery, which was across the street from the school. And I'd look in the windows, and I, usually the shades were shut, 
But I'd want to, it was like I wanted to see inside. I wanted to be a part of something that was so special, right? There was something mysterious and special about being a bride of God or, you know, a nun. And um, I thought about becoming a nun as a little kid. The other thing that uh, I really recall about this experience was essentially the story of Catholicism, the premise of it, sort of the idea that there's a God who was a big guy with white hair and a beard to me, in my mind, and that this God literally created this world and humans and um, and then that the devil essentially came and tempted Adam and Eve to eat from the, in the Garden of Eden, to eat from this apple. And that that very act, in my mind, you know, this is a literal experience for me as a kid trying to imagine this, created, you know, mortal sin, right? And that that condemned every person from that moment forward to being condemned with mortal, this mortal sin, unless you were saved, right? Unless you sort of, however that happened. And um, the other thing that was um, really sort of, again, in this, I, I think I have a very visual mind, right? So um, heaven, hell, and purgatory. I used to try and imagine these places as real places like you'd walk into, right? And so, and I remember with hell, I'd try to imagine how hot it would be, right? And how loud it would be with people screaming. And I'd really try and make myself think about it because this was really serious business, right? I had to really get it. And, um, and then heaven was sort of kind of like cotton candy, you know, fluffy and sweet and, you know, the pearly white gates and angels with halos and, you know, it's very, very, you know, look at the pictures and that's what, and then I, but I tried to imagine being in there and then there was purgatory and I think I spent the most time thinking about purgatory. I think I felt like I wasn't going to be that bad that I'd end up in hell. I didn't think I'd like kill anybody. But I knew that I was not perfect enough to go to heaven either, right? That that just was only for people who were really perfect. And so I thought a lot about purgatory, and it, it just seemed like such an empty, lonely place to be trapped. Kind of my idea was forever, that you're in limbo forever. You're disconnected from people forever. It sounded pretty bad to me. Um, I didn't have the fortune of uh, having perspectives like this, but there's a, a Zen um, Suzuki Shun, Shunru said, hell is not punishment, it's training, right? So it'd be nice to have a lighter attitude about these things. Um, and maybe people do if they stay in the church, right? And they stay involved in religion over the years. Maybe they get a, a lighter attitude about these, but I had such a literal relationship to it all. And that didn't ever change, really. Um, 
when I was 10, my parents divorced. And so that was sort of um, a significant shift in my religious and spiritual life, at least familiarly. So um, two new worlds, completely new worlds happened. (laughs) So I actually moved with my mom and moved um, away from Seattle into Olympia. And so I I didn't spend a whole lot of time with my father after my parents divorced. We had a pretty conflicted, headstrong relationship. Uh, I wasn't always probably the easiest daughter. In fact, I know I wasn't the easiest daughter for him. But what he did was he ended up finding the born-again Christian church. And so, um, and then, you know, got very involved in that church. Very, you know, and it's a um, very fanatical religious and very intense. So Catholicism seems sort of tame to me um, after having a little bit of an exposure to the born-again Christian world. It's amazing, though, right? Everybody thinks they're, you know, they find their practice, they find their religion, they find their beliefs, and you believe them and you commit to them. And so he was doing, he was doing something he really believed in. And he committed himself to as much as he could. Um, my brother and sister ended up um, also moving back to Seattle and living with him and becoming born-again Christians as well. I um, sort of, I'll skip around a little bit, but my father died when he was 50. So he died pretty young. And so I was in my early 20s. And by that time, I actually was with um, my first long-term partner, and she was a woman. So that meant I was a lesbian, which uh, in that church was equivalent to being a murderer, essentially. Like, I, read, I looked it up, right? I, well, what is it? How do they really define it? And it was equivalent to adultery, sorcery, murder, you know. So... So that was quite something, right, to try and, like, I remember one conversation in the van with my dad, and he was saying, well, I'm a sinner too. I speed sometimes. (laughs) You know, it was like, (laughs) really, you know, he's trying. Um, And, and, but um, I think that the, you know, I don't know whether it was he really, wanted uh, and believed that it was so important to be saved, you know, in this particular way, um, or whether if he really just took the the directives of this church, which were very, very, you know, clear about convert, you know, helping other sinners and not wasting your time with people who weren't going to sort of be saved. Like, I looked it up again online, and there was like this whole thing about not going to the funeral of people who weren't um, born-again Christians, you know, like not even doing that because then you are, or going into a Catholic church because then you were committing heresy. So there's just this, there was a lot of intense energy around it. And so I find myself in this um, church, my father's church, after he's died, and the minister is telling the story and um, he starts to 
invite all of the sinners, and particularly the homosexual sinners, to stand up and be saved. Yeah. So, so that was also, you know, there's another profound moment, right? And um, it was, a, it was uh, I think that what happened for me is, essentially, I disconnected then from what I would call religion, right? It just didn't feel safe for me anymore to have any association with religion, anything structured. Um, so that kind of reinforced that earlier fear that I had been building up or had experienced some in the Catholicism. And so there was now this new level of like real intense guardedness against religion, structured religion. And um, so in the meantime, that happened, and then we're going to go back in time a little bit. And I moved to Olympia with my mom, and she, she opens up a whole new world of... Um, a whole new world of journey. Um, and for her, she did a lot of, I would say, more, uh, a lot of exploration, um, a lot of different practices. Um, one of the people that I remember, she was listening to meditations by Shakti Gawain, guided meditations. So I had shared her tapes, guided meditation tapes, and I listened to those actually for a long time, a lot of years I had those tapes around. And um, then there was Phyllis, who was the local psychic. And so we went to the psychic together a few times. And, um, uh, and then my mom found her teacher, her guru, and her spiritual practice, which um, has a whole lot of amazing things and things that I don't really relate to either. But my mom... Recently, I, I, years ago, a few years ago, I asked her what she wanted for her, her birthday or her wish, and she said, I want to be enlightened. How cool is that? <laughs> right? So, shame and fear. So, here we go. I'm bad. I'm not good enough. Shame is all about I'm bad, right? I'm a bad person. And there's a lot of covering up that happens when we feel ashamed. Like, it's just that... The habit is then to hide oneself, to hide, to cover. And fear is, you know, right, frequently turning away or um, freezing, you know. Um, There wasn't a whole lot of aggressive fighting that can happen in a fear response for me, but, um, but there was a lot of turning away and running and a lot of covering, and those are sort of antithesis of this practice, (laughs) antithesis of it. So it was, I did a lot of years, I think, of uh, practicing covering up and turning away. Um, In college, um, I heard Ram Dass speak. And that was probably the first Buddhist teacher I ever heard speak. And I read How Can I Help, his book, and I was really inspired. Really felt uh, like, oh, okay, this is good, this is spiritual, but it's not religious, right? And and I really loved his teachings. And um, I was interested in meditation and went... Once or twice, there was a local Zen priest who held meditations at his house. 
Um, and I went a couple of times, but, or maybe once, but I just didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. And they don't really give you instructions in Zen. <laughs> and I really was just, I think, way too insecure and too shame-ridden and too fearful to sit with myself. You know? and, and maybe, too, it felt like more of a religion than I felt comfortable with, so I didn't go back. Um, another significant event that occurred for me that is uh, what that I associate with that way-seeking mind is uh, I, I don't know I was out on a walk in one of the forests streets where it was like I lived you know in kind of a foresty area where my college was and I was on a walk with a few friends and I had this very intense sort of image of myself in a former life as a priest or a monk. And um, I thought, really? (laughs) Could I really? Would I do that? And it really stuck with me. Um, It really stuck to me. You know, like this idea that maybe I could actually practice in some spiritual practice was very appealing to me, like looking into the nunnery, you know, it's like there was something really was like, wow, you know. Um, there's a, a little uh, poem by Rumi that uh, kind of kind of maybe embodies the, the quality of the feeling that I had, um, the feeling of, this, of, of desire or call or interest, and it was It goes like this. Um, There is a community of the spirit. Join in and feel the delight of walking in the noisy street and being in the noise or being the noise. Drink all your passions and be a disgrace. Close both eyes and see with the other eye. Open your hands if you want to be held. Sit down in this circle Quit acting like a wolf and feel the shepherd's love feeling you. All night, your beloved wanders. Don't accept consolations. Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Move outside the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. So I think I started to move in that direction. And I, after I graduated from college, I moved to Boulder, Colorado. And in Boulder, this is in 1987, Naropa Institute, which is a Buddhist studies program, and they have a master's in Buddhism and counseling. Um, and I knew I wanted to go into the field of therapy, helping counseling. And there was a Chogan Trungpa Rinpoche, who was a very influential author and teacher, founded this school. And I wanted to go there. (laughs) I really wanted to get my master's in Buddhism and and counseling. And I was, you know, really close to making that commitment. But, um, you know, as fate has it, I had a friend that um, I had met 
on a, I had done a gestalt therapy retreat with my mom at one point, and um, it was like, um, I met this guy, Phil, who was a psychologist. And he was, uh, you know, I don't know, he was older than me, so he was further along in his life, and he had his degree. And he came to visit me in Boulder, and we went for this long hike, and I, you know, I had been talking about going to Naropa Institute. And I was so miserable, because the whole hike, he was telling me that I could not go to Naropa, and why I couldn't go there. And, um, you know, he, he had a good point, which was Naropa Institute at that point was not credentialed. So I would not be able to get licensed and practice, you know, um, independently uh, if I got my master's degree there. So the combination of practicality and fear, I didn't go there. And then I came, you know, and when I started the Vipassana practice, I found out all these amazing teachers that have started Spirit Rock and IMS were there in Boulder at the time, running the first (laughs) Vipassana retreats in the States. And I left. (laughs) And they were involved with Naropa. So, but you know, like I said earlier, there's not really any mistakes, right? Like, who, you know, maybe I wouldn't have even gotten involved in the practice seriously if I'd gone to school then. Maybe I just, I had a lot to learn. (laughs) I had a lot of fear and shame to let go of. I had a lot, I have learned so much since. And so when I did come to the practice, I was in a really different place. So, so I left Boulder, I came to San Francisco. And one of the, um, you know, I knew there were lots of good graduate schools here in psychology, so I could make a choice. And I also had decided, you know, I was ready to come out as a lesbian. So, you know, back in time here, forward a little bit. But, and um, so, and I met my partner, my long-term partner at that point, first one. And she was an atheist, very, very serious atheist. I think it was safer that way for me, right? No threat. And um, and I went. I ended up making a very practical choice about graduate school. I got. I went to uh, San Francisco State University and got a master's in social work because I could use it anywhere, and I, I could get a job in more places than any other degree and it was cheaper than what I really wanted to do. There was also um, California Institute of Integral Studies and uh, ITP, which is where Susan went, and other, other institutes that were more spiritually based where I could have gotten a degree, but I, again, sort of went for the very practical choice. And I think, again, because of the fear, right? And, and I think also the shame was still really strong in me and not really having confidence in myself. Um, Not really thinking that uh, I had, you know, that much to offer or was smart enough or would do well enough. I didn't have confidence um, that, that it would all be okay. So, but I got my degree 
and um, and then started working and then reconnected with Buddhism and kind of started a phase of my life I, I consider myself a nightstand Buddhist. So I had Pema Chodron books and Ram Dass books and Jack Cornfield books and I quoted them and you know I might do guided meditations that were sort of like Shakti Gawain style or stuff you know and <clears throat> yeah um, my my ex-partner and I had kids and, um, and that was a whole new phase of my life that was very very consuming and um, and I started to really feel this strong pull. I wanted to, I really wanted to start meditating. And I wanted to, you know, I heard about there's a church um, where they do, there's a local church, what, I can't remember what it is, but they do meditation and lots of other kinds of religion here. And then I heard about IMC. And, um, but my ex-partner was a devout atheist. And I was a devout codependent. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't venture out. I did not, did not leave the home to go do anything like this. Um, but in the meantime, I practiced letting go, right? Because this is something I wanted. And I let go, and I let go, and I let go. And I practiced generosity with my kids, constantly giving, 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 giving. And those are two really important parts of this practice. And I think I got better at those things than I would have ever got set, ever gotten sitting on a cushion by myself. So, a gift, right? Really taught me two very, very important parts of this practice. I didn't know it, but it was happening. Um, so, at some point, that long-term relationship blew up in a bad way <laughs> um, and I was I all of a sudden had a little teeny bit more space and room and time in my life I still had the kids most of the time at the in the beginning and was working and very busy but I had moments now and those moments they were all about mindfulness, meditation, going to, started mostly with going to um, day-longs with Jack Cornfield, And um, I think that was really helpful because so much of what he was teaching at that time in that setting was a lot of equanimity and metta practices. And I swear to God, I was doing meditation one gulp at a time. I was in so much pain. I was really suffering. I was very, very, just heartbroken, right? So for a long time, I, I would maybe sit for five minutes, and that was all I could do, right? It was just, it was all I could do. But I would sit, and I would sit every day, pretty much. And it always helped. And then it helped, like, at one point I was at a conference and. Jack is pretty accessible, right? So it was a big conference. But I was in the aisle, and he was walking down, and he talked to me. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, Jack, I cry all the time, not, not just about sad things, but I, I listen to the radio, and I hear about this person running a marathon or doing this, and I cry. And he said, oh, 
He made it okay. He made it be just fine. He said something like, you know, some people just have these really big hearts. And he said, so, you know, you might, you might start with equanimity practice, which is not typical, right? You don't usually get assigned um, that practice early on. And so equanimity practice is essentially, um, I memorized his, and it goes like this, you know, um, breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I calm my mind. May I be open, may I be balanced, may I be calm. That's the first core part. It took me a long time to get past breathing in, I calm my body, (laughs) breathing out, I calm my mind. In fact, I saw him probably a year later at another retreat. This was a residential retreat, but it was still for therapists. And I told them, I'm still saying, breathing in, I calm my body, and breathing out, I calm my mind. And he remembered my story, and he was very kind again. And, um, and then uh, there was another retreat with Jack and Trudy Goodman. And um, Trudy is a sweetheart. She's a teacher in, at Inside LA, and she teaches at Spirit Rock, and... She had a, um, for some reason I got put in a small group discussion with her. We broke up and she ended up just telling this group a bit about her own, um, her own experience of divorce and the breakup. And it was like so, so similar to what I had experienced. It was such a gift. It was like, again, sort of being freed a little bit. Like, it's okay, you know. This doesn't, it's, it's, you know, this happens. <laughs> bad things happen to people. You're not a bad person, you know. You didn't do anything wrong. And it's all okay. And so that was a huge turning point. And the other thing she said to me was, you know, what happens in these situations is we lose connection with our intuition. We stop listening. We doubt ourselves. And then we, get, we lose it. We get disconnected. And it is so precious. She said, Tanya, if your intuition tells you to drink orange juice, drink orange juice. So I started listening again, more. And it was probably not long after that that I came here for the first time. I'd been driving, you know, 45 miles to Spirit Rock for occasional Monday night sits with Jack (laughs) or day longs. Somehow I just did not, I was not ready to walk in the door of the center, which is literally 10 minutes away from my home. And I, I just, I just didn't want to come here. But then I did, and I was ready, and I walked in the door, and I really haven't walked out since. <laughs> and um, I met Gil, and um, he's been a really profound teacher for me, and um, I remember, um, you know, I was still working through this sort of religious, spiritual sort of 
helping others, you know, and sort of more of that focus than sort of taking seriously my own healing process is just legitimate in and of itself. And one day I had an interview with him and we were going for a walk and he said, so, you know, why, why do you want to help people with mindfulness? Is it because of a spiritual reason or just because you want to help people feel better? And it just came out of my mouth, spiritual. I'm like, oh, I hope I really meant that. <laughs> you know, but it just came out. It was just there. And, and that was sort of probably one of the first or second walks where, and I asked him to be my teacher formally. And... Um, and then I started to, you know, sort of really connect with the Dharma and start to really hear the Dharma, sort of the stories, not just about sort of the sitting and the meditating and the impermanence and some of the basic teachings, but sort of more and more of the, the, the real sort of more the suttas and, and the Eightfold Path and all these other sort of parts of it that... Um, you don't necessarily have to relate to and still be able to come to a center like this or go on a retreat. And, um, and then a turning, another turning point was um, I was trying to decide between um, p- further training in mindfulness to help with my, in my clinical practice with my clients um, or join the Dedicated Practitioners Program. And at that point, I made the very clear commitment to my own practice. I realized that um, it was really by helping myself and and focusing on my own healing and and learning and seeing the mind that I would be really of help to others. So... um, So that way-seeking mind, you know, that kept looking through the windows, that had the fantasies of being a monk, that saw Naropa Institute and wanted to go there, you know, that, that brought me to Jack and then to here. And, you know, there are many moments of talks here with Andrea Fella and Gil that just opened the window wider and wider. So... I think uh, one of the biggest things I've learned is that um, healing happens, right? Healing happens, and we don't do it, and it doesn't come in ways that we expect or plan, but healing happens when we show up for life, and we stop turning away from it and stop covering ourselves, and, you know, we let ourselves cry when we feel sad, and we open our hearts to whatever is there and that's when healing happens I think um, my final reflection would just be to say that the, as I looked back at my life more and more over this process I was able to look back more and more and just sort of see how all the shame had built up and how it had then flowed into other areas and things that I'd done that I felt ashamed of. And, you know, and I was able to say, oh, yeah, wow, (laughs) and have compassion for 
myself and not feel identified as that bad person that did these bad things. And that was a real nice gift from this process as well. So, so my final kind of reflection is, where's your homing device? You know, what does it sound like? Where does it live in you? Where do you hear your call? Where do you feel it in your body? And are you listening? So, that's it. Yeah, and if we have time, so if anybody wants to share or ask a question, please feel free. You did. Yeah, you know, I, I, um, actually, one of the other layers was this thinking about, you know, there are people that get told things by priests or about how they're bad, and I think, God, that's just the whole premise. Everybody's bad, you know. We're bad, then they're bad, so they tell us we're bad, but they're saved, maybe, you know. It's just, it's such a bad system. <laughs> really a bad system. It just, you know, yeah. I like your voice, Thank you. Thank you very much. I, 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 I just want to say that the way, the way the system works here, if you have a question or want to say something, using the microphone is good because the talks are recorded and that way people hear what's going on and also other people here are still not working is the volume not on over there mm-hmm. <laughs> there now that one's on richard is this one? Try it again. Is it working there now? We yes, go. now we have yeah. volume. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Tanya. I have a, a question. I don't, if you'd be willing to share, I know you do a lot of uh, daily life practice as well as a lot of retreat practice. Can you share do you th- um, maybe different things that you've learned with these different types of practices, or which has been more influential, or are they just all merged together into one, or something like this? Hmm. I think the way I'm going to answer this is that what happens for me on retreat is like, it's like, you know, you go in and you, you dig the tunnel. You dig the ditch. You dig the tunnel. You create space. You, get, you create more opening. And because it's really intense and concentrated, right? And you... And then you, when you come back into life, 
It's easier. There's less between you and that space. So I think the more practice I have, the more retreat practice, the, the easier it is in daily life to find that space. Oh, I'm not sure when it happened, but at some point you transitioned from Pema Chodron and Jack Cornfield to the suttas. Yes. <laughs> I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about how that reading may have influenced your practice. Yeah, actually, I, I love the suttas because I love the similes. There's all these amazing similes. And what happened is I started to read the suttas and have felt body connection to the Dharma. Like I started to understand it through a physical sense of it. Um, Like, you know, wisdom is referred to as like a very sharp knife in a lot of the suttas, right? And so I I started to see, oh, that's that feeling of like cutting through, right? I could feel it. And then there's the white cloth that's stained, you know, and I could sort of see that in my mind, you know, that, you know, when it would be clean and when it would be stained, right? And um, so it it was a, it made the Dharma actually come alive for me um, and feel like it started to feel like, actually, there's a path here. There's like a path. There's things that I can practice with. There, I can go. I mean, there's I'm, actually there's something to do. <laughs> and I that's I got very engaged and very inspired and just strong desire to see to see the mind to see the truth to understand. Really, yeah. And it was that that really fed that. Because we can't do anything really terribly wrong here, I just wanted to say, I don't have my glasses, <laughs> so I don't see you too well, but your arms are so beautiful and brown. <laughs> That's right, you can't do anything wrong here. <laughs> no mistakes. It's beautiful. Do you want the microphone? So thank you. That just gave me permission. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Um, And I heard it before, but apparently not um, clearly enough. So um, I love you. I've got to watch that journey very closely. And I still believe it's all gift, right? Yeah. So you own that and you spoke it well. And I'm thankful for that. Thank you.
But mostly I just wanted to say I love you. <laughs> I love you too. Yeah. I'm very grateful. I've been very lucky to have some good company on the path on the journey. And you, Teresa, and my mom have all been there, and Susan, Richard, Diana, Don. <laughs> very important people in my practice, in my life. We don't get here alone. No, I didn't do this. I didn't, I didn't get here by myself. Wherever here is. <laughs> in the moment, really. I, didn't, I wasn't able to settle into the moment and just be present for a long time. Yeah. So, thank you all very much. And may you all have wonderful companions and spiritual support on the path. Find them in all kinds of precious places in your life.